Welcome back to The Law. I am E.K. Williams, and this is episode 16. We are going to discuss Furman versus Georgia. It's a 1972 case which temporarily ended the death penalty in the United States. It was not resurrected until 1976, just three years later. But that's when the court revisited the issue in the case of Gregg versus Georgia. And the Gregg case is on the list for a future episode, but today it is Furman versus Georgia, the case that temporarily ended the death penalty in the United States. As always, The Law with D.K. Williams is brought to you by the Launchpad Media Network, always launching ideas in your direction. Find us at thelaunchpadmedia.com. And remember, follow me on Twitter at Blue Carp. Trying to get those numbers up, help me out and on facebook.com slash bluecarp. Always continue the discussion there. Let me know what you think. If you have any comments or questions or suggestions, I'd love to hear from you. Furman versus Georgia. It's about the death penalty. So before we get into what the court says, let's talk about my perspective and where I'm coming from. I am against the death penalty. Check out a video I did years ago that sums up my opposition. I'll link to it in the description. But I'm against it. But that doesn't mean that I think it is unconstitutional. Far too many people equate the two, and that's just intellectually dishonest. So people think, oh, that's a bad idea, therefore it's unconstitutional. Or, that's a good idea, therefore it is constitutional. And that's just nonsense. I mentioned this before, but you see this all the time on the cable news networks or radio or whatever. Something is a good idea or not is irrelevant to whether or not it is constitutional. And it's just keep that in mind. So this is a good example as far as I'm concerned. I think the death penalty is bad policy and it's immoral and it's a big government program that has failed, but that doesn't mean it's unconstitutional. It is a legitimate use of government authority, government power under the Constitution. It shouldn't be, in my opinion, but it is. So we have to acknowledge the, the reality of that, in my opinion. So in other words, the U.S. Constitution does not prohibit the government, state or federal, from executing people. And the argument is about whether or not the Eighth Amendment prohibition against the imposition of, quote, cruel and unusual punishment is violated by the death penalty. We'll get into that analysis shortly. I don't think it does, but that doesn't mean I don't think it's a bad idea. I represented a few defendants back in North Carolina that were on death row. I didn't do any death penalty trials, but I did some post-conviction appeals. I was fortunate enough that I was able to argue one of those death penalty appeals before for the North Carolina Supreme Court and won that, so that was pretty cool. Definitely a highlight of my legal career. I just mentioned that as more evidence of where I'm coming from. Again, as a policy matter, not a constitutional one, libertarians oppose government power. They want it limited. And there's no bigger grant of authority than the ability to execute people to kill them. Plus, the government is largely incompetent, and quote-unquote conservatives love to point that out when it comes to health care. And they're like, they go, oh, government, oh, they can't run healthcare. What a boondoggle that would be. They're incompetent. It's horrible. But they ignore that same concern when it comes to the military and to police and law and order and executing people they think are bad. Libertarians are consistent in their distrust of government power, government authority, and we have a desire to see it minimized no matter how it's being used. And that's the difference, one of the differences, between libertarians who believe in limited government and conservatives and progressives who love big government and trust it just on slightly different things. Now, in the Furman case, it's interesting in one manner in that it has so many separate opinions, more than I've come across. I mean, I certainly haven't read but a small percentage of Supreme Court cases, but this is unusual in that there's not one opinion signed on by a majority of the justices. So there were five justices that said in these three cases, Furman was just one, we'll talk about the other two, in these three cases, the death penalty was unconstitutional as applied to these three people, okay? So these 
these three guys were not going to be executed. Five separate opinions. Not one of the five in the majority agreed with the same rationale or the same analysis as the other ones. But they all came to the same conclusion and agreed that as it applied to these three defendants, including Furman, it was unconstitutional. Those five separate opinions in support of the judgments overturning the death penalty in these cases were William Douglas, William Brennan, Potter Stewart, Byron White, Colorado's own Byron White, and Thurgood Marshall. There were four separate dissents. So that's all nine justices wrote separately. The dissents were written by Chief Justice Warren Berger, Harry Blackman, Lewis Powell, and William Rehnquist's. Now, this case, Furman does not say that the death penalty itself, as a concept, is unconstitutional. But that was the effect for several years, just as a practical effect, until the Supreme Court came out with the Gregg versus Georgia in 1976, three years later. And that case specifically allowed for the death penalty with certain rules designed to make it more consistently applied. Now, Furman, the case we're talking about today, is 167 pages long in PDF format. Now, remember, because there's nine separate opinions in this case, five separate opinions for the majority, four separate opinions for the dissenters. I'm going to focus on William Douglas' opinion in support of the majority and Harry Blackman's separate opinion in dissent. I think they cover the major issues and considerations uh, that had to be analyzed in the case. Who is Furman? William Henry Furman. He was convicted of murder while committing a home burglary in the state of Georgia. He gave one statement to police that he tripped and accidentally discharged his weapon, which ended up killing someone, the person who lived in the house. And he gave another statement that while he was fleeing, he just turned and shot through a door. Either way, he was sentenced to death for murder. Part of what applies to his case is the felony murder rule, which we can talk about more in another podcast in the future. But the felony murder rule is if you're committing a felony, like burglaring someone's house, and someone ends up dead because of your felony, you've committed murder even if you didn't intend to kill that person. That's a problematic concept, but it still exists. And it certainly existed in 1973 with Furman. So the Supreme Court case is about Furman, but it's also about two other cases. But we call it Furman versus Georgia because Furman was the first name. The other two were Jackson versus Georgia and Branch versus Texas. Now, these two cases did not involve a death of any kind, not a murder, not a death. They involved rape convictions. This opinion effectively ended the death penalty for rape, and that ruling was basically uh, was confirmed in a 1977 case, Coker versus Georgia. Seems like a lot of these are coming out of Georgia, aren't they? The Coker case basically said that the death penalty for rape of an adult woman was grossly disproportionate and excessive punishment, therefore unconstitutional under the Eighth Amendment. In essence, the Supreme Court said that the government can't kill a defendant if the defendant didn't kill someone. I'll just leave that there for now, because that's not what this is all about. This is about Furman versus, the, the Furman versus George case, Furman case, which was a murder. Certiorari was granted in Furman, limited to the following question. Check this part out. This is what they're going to decide, or what they're arguing. Does the imposition and carrying out of the death penalty in these cases constitute cruel and unusual punishment in violation of the Eighth and Fourteenth Amendments? The court holds that the imposition and carrying out of the death penalty in these cases constitute cruel and unusual punishment in violation of the 8th and 14th Amendments. So that's the result. Five of the justices agreed with this two-sentence result, but none of them had the same rationale. That's why they wrote separately five different opinions. And remember, this is how they emphasize, or they make it clear, that it's in these three cases it's unconstitutional. The decision isn't that the death penalty itself is unconstitutional always, even though two of the justices wanted to go there. That was not what all five of them agreed on. So I am going to focus on Douglas, but I do want to quote Potter Stewart's conclusion, who was one of the five who found that the death penalty was unconstitutional as applied to these three defendants, including Furman. He wrote, These death sentences are cruel and unusual in the same way that being struck by lightning 
is cruel and unusual. For all of the people convicted of rapes and murders in 1967 and 1968, many just as reprehensible as these, the petitioners are among a capriciously selected random handful upon whom the sentence of death has in fact been imposed. My concurring brothers have demonstrated that if any basis can be discerned for the selection of these few to be sentenced to death, it is the constitutionally impermissible basis of race. But racial discrimination has not been proved, and I put it to one side. I simply conclude that the 8th and 14th Amendments cannot tolerate the infliction of a sentence of death under legal systems that permit this unique penalty to be so wantonly and so freakishly imposed. He's saying that, I'm not saying the death penalty is always racist or always unconstitutional. I'm saying is as it is being applied today, it is arbitrary and capricious and therefore cruel and unusual. Stewart, Byron White, Colorado's own Byron White, and Douglas all wrote about the arbitrariness, the randomness of the death penalty and how that made it cruel and unusual. And that makes sense. I get that argument. Now, if 10 people commit a similar crime, but only four of them get the death penalty, that's just a crapshoot, right? And is that justice? Supreme Court in this case said it was not. So Stewart, White, Douglas all agreed that that the death penalty as applied and currently utilized was cruel and unusual. They didn't say that the death penalty itself was cruel and unusual always and forever. William Brennan and Thurgood Marshall, the other two who wrote for the majority, majority result because they all have different opinions, they did say that. They did say that the death penalty by itself was cruel and unusual always. But that's not what the court decided, just those two. So we've got this Furman case in 73, and then we know the Supreme Court revisited the issue in 77 in the Gregg case. So what happened in between? With some help from Wikipedia, the Furman decision caused all death sentences pending at that time in 1973 to be reduced to life imprisonment. This forced the states and the U.S. Congress for federal death penalty cases to rewrite their statutes for capital offenses, cases where the death penalty might be imposed. They had to ensure or they tried to ensure that the death penalty would be administered in a more rational way, not in a capricious or discriminatory nature. So in those four years from 73 to 77, 37 states enacted new death penalty laws aimed at overcoming this concern about arbitrariness and capriciousness when imposing the death penalty. Several states mandated bifurcated trials with a guilt and innocence phase, and then if there was guilt found, a separate sentencing phase, and they imposed statutory standards to guide the discretion of juries and judges in opposing capital sentences. So they're giving you more rules, basically. They're trying to make it more fair and take away a lot of the discretion from judges and or juries. Many of these schemes were upheld in Gregg and some other cases in the same line of cases. Back to Furman, Douglas wrote, It is also said in our opinions that the proscription of cruel and unusual punishments is not fastened to the obsolete, but may require meaning as public opinion becomes enlightened by a humane justice. So what he's saying and the five other justices who wrote for the majority. That was what was considered cruel and unusual when the Constitution was adopted. Doesn't have to be the standard forever. Doesn't have to be the standard now. Doesn't have to be the standard in 73 when they decided this case. So let's look at that idea. I'm very much against the idea of a living Constitution. So on one hand, they're wrong, you could argue, because the Constitution remains fixed. If such enlightenment were to occur, then legislatures would simply change the death penalty laws. To think that job is for the judiciary to do is argue wrong, and I get that, and I'm normally on board with that. It misunderstands or ignores the entire purpose of the separation of powers. I get that, but just hear me out on this. On the other hand, the words cruel and unusual are comparative words. If standards change, 
then what is cruel and unusual can evolve in a comparative matter. Think about it. The word rich is comparative. Rich compared to what? Are you rich compared to J. Paul Getty? Or are you rich compared to an African villager in the Congo? You can be rich in one case, but not the other. It's a comparative analysis. The word itself is comparative. And that word that, that was used in the Constitution is comparative. So you can be rich in one context, but not the former. And if what is usual changes over time, and it does, what is unusual also changes. So I get that because you're not rewriting the Constitution in that sense, at least arguably. You're just applying it according to the standards written down, cruel and unusual. But what is cruel and unusual has changed. One more bad example to compare it to is if you've got a rule that says, I won't hang out with fat people. Okay, fat is comparative. Compared to what? And so when you say this, you're in college and all your friends are pretty skinny, and you say, I'm never going to hang out with fat people. Well, in 30 years, your friends are bigger than they were in college, but they're not fat for being 50. They would be fat for being 20, but they're not fat for being 50. So you're still not hanging out with fat people, but what is fat has changed. Same word, different application. So Douglas goes on, and he says, the generality of a law inflicting capital punishment is one thing. What may be said of the validity of a law on the books and what may be done with the law in its application, do or may, lead to quite different conclusions. So what he's saying here is that what the law says and how it is carried out are two different things. The way it is carried out can be unconstitutional, even if the law as written isn't. That's where the arbitrariness comes into play, and it's a factor for these five justices who voted to return the death penalty in these three cases. Douglas goes on, but the words, at least when read in light of the English prescription against selective and irregular use of penalties, suggest that it is cruel and unusual to apply the death penalty or any other penalty selectively to minorities whose numbers are few, who are outcasts of society, and who are unpopular, but whom society is willing to see suffer through it, but would not countenance general application of the same penalty across the board. He's saying that it would be cruel and unusual to apply a criminal penalty to a minority group and not to the majority, which is what is happening in 1973 with the death penalty. It's largely the case today and has been throughout most of U.S. history. And regardless of the legality or the constitutionality of it, it is immoral. That's me speaking as a limited government believer. Douglas discusses the history of the death penalty, notes that in colonial times, some juries refused to find people guilty of capital crimes because they didn't believe the death penalty was warranted. And he specifically refers to this as jury nullification, something we've discussed. I love that he doesn't condemn it. He acknowledges it. He calls it jury nullification and says, hey, this is what was going on. And as far as I'm concerned, this recognition of the concept of jury nullification makes it legitimate. And it shows that it's got a long-standing history of use in the United States. So keep it up, America. Nullify laws you don't like when you're on a jury. It's American. And quickly, an aside, people, some people are so scared of that concept. They're like, oh my goodness, you can't have juries doing that. Well, juries aren't going to do it for murder. Juries aren't going to do it for robbery. But they might do it for drug laws, possession of a gun law. They could do it for that type of thing. And that is warranted if the jury decides it. That is within their power and is what they should do. Douglas goes on. The imposition of the death sentence and the exercise of dispensing power by the courts and the executive follow discriminatory patterns. The death sentence is disproportionately imposed and carried out on the poor, the Negro, and the members of unpopular groups. A study of capital cases in Texas from 1924 to 1968 reached the following application of the death penalty as unequal. Most of those executed were poor, young, and ignorant. And that's just the truth. Back to me. That's the truth with a capital T. The death penalty and the law and order, conservatives, so-called conservatives, they express a deep faith in the ability of the government, of state actors, 
to be efficient, effective, just when it comes to the death penalty. They're like all about law and order. The government is great at this. We have to respect the government. And this is the same faith that conservatives have in law and order and the death penalty and the criminal justice system. The same faith that they mock in so-called progressives. Progressives go, oh yeah, the government can take care of us health-wise. The government can take care of poor people. The government can take care of education. Well, the conservatives mock that faith, but they have the exact same faith when it comes to the police and the military. So they both do it just for different aspects of the government. Only libertarians see that the government deserves no faith and should be given as little authority and power as possible. Back to Douglas. He goes on. Another ethnic disparity is found in the type of sentence imposed for rape. Because remember, two of these cases were rape cases, not murder cases. The Negro convicted of rape is far more likely to get the death penalty than a term sentence, whereas whites and Latins are far more likely to get a term sentence than the death penalty, end quote. Now, these are just facts, and I love it when white conservatives deny these facts or they ignore them. Their faith in this government overrides the truth. And that is the very definition of faith. And it's why conservatives are just a different flavor of status from progressives. Rocky Road and chocolate truffle are different flavors. They both ice cream. I love this line from Douglas. One searches our chronicles in vain for the execution of any member of the affluent strata of the society. The Leopolds and Loeb's are given prison terms, not sentenced to death. I love that line. That is great. Now, Leopold and Loeb, not only the name, of the juvenile detention facility in the popular CW TV show Riverdale, based on the Archie comics. They were two people that were convicted of murder. As Wikipedia explains, Leopold and Loeb were wealthy students at the University of Chicago who in 1924 kidnapped and murdered a 14-year-old boy, Bobby Franks. They committed the murder, characterized at the time as the crime of the century by the media, as a demonstration of their perceived intellectual superiority which they thought rendered them capable of carrying out a perfect crime. Leopold and Loeb were arrested. Loeb's family retained Clarence Darrow, who you might be familiar with, pretty famous lawyer, as counsel. Both men, Leopold and Loeb, were sentenced to life imprisonment, plus 99 years. And just so you know, Loeb was mur murdered by a prisoner in jail in 1936, and Leopold was eventually released in 1958. Now, this murderer... You might have heard about it in some movies because it's been portrayed in more than one movie. There was a play called Rope. Alfred Hitchcock made a movie of the same name based on Leopold and Loeb. Apparently the movie Compulsion and Swoon, Murder by Numbers, also based on the Leopold and Loeb murder. But what Douglas is saying here is Leopold and Loeb were rich white kids. They premeditated and planned a murder. They get life in jail, which was what affluent always get. They've never been sentenced to death. At least that's Douglas's point. He goes on to say that we cannot say from facts disclosed in these records that these defendants were sentenced to death because they were black. Yet our task is not restricted to an effort to divine what motives impelled these death penalties. Rather, we deal with a system of law and of justice that leaves to the uncontrolled discretion of judges or juries the determination whether defendants committing these crimes should die or be imprisoned. Under these laws, no standards govern the selection of the penalty. People live or die dependent on the whim of one man or of 12. He's absolutely right. He sums up. Thus, these discretionary statutes are unconstitutional in their operation. Now remember, in their operation. Not on their face, but how they're using them. They are pregnant with discrimination 
and discrimination is an ingredient not compatible with the idea of equal protection of the laws that is implicit in the ban on cruel and unusual punishments. Any law which is non-discriminatory on its face may be applied in such a way as to violate the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. Such conceivably might be the fate of a mandatory death penalty where equal or lesser sentences were imposed on the elite, harsher one on the minorities or members of the lower castes. Whether a mandatory death penalty would otherwise be constitutional is a question I do not reach. But in these cases, they're arbitrary, they're capricious, they're cruel and unusual. So in these cases, he votes to overturn the death penalty. Now, I said a few highlights of Blackman's dissent, because as much as I, I do like Douglas, what he's written here, I like Blackman just a little bit more, even though they come to opposite conclusions. Blackman, a few highlights. Here we go. Cases such as these provide for me an excruciating agony of the spirit. I yield to no one in the depth of my distaste antipathy, and indeed abhorrence for the death penalty, with all its aspects of physical distress and fear and of moral judgment exercised by finite minds. That distaste is buttressed by a belief that capital punishment serves no useful purpose that can be demonstrated. For me, it violates childhood's training and life's experiences. Now remember, he voted to keep the death penalty in these cases. I'll go back to it. it. Is not compatible with the philosophical convictions I have been able to develop. It is antagonistic to any sense of reverence for life, were I a legislator, I would vote against the death penalty for the policy reasons argued by counsel for the respective petitioners and expressed and adopted in the several opinions filed by the justices, the five, who vote to reverse these judgment. Back to me. His description of this difference between being a judge and being a legislator is exactly right. I agree with him on that. And he goes on. The several concurring opinions, the five who wanted to reverse or voted did reverse the death penalty, the several concurring opinions acknowledge as they must that until today, capital punishment was accepted and assumed as not unconstitutional per se under the Eighth Amendment or the Fourteenth Amendment. So they did say that. They said, yeah, it was clearly allowed when the Constitution was written. So when it was written, they did not consider it cruel and unusual. But as the five said, that definition has changed. Blackman points that out. He said, hey, they're saying it changed. They admit it. Now, that doesn't mean they're wrong, but it's something that has to be addressed. Blackman goes on. To reverse the judgments in these cases to reverse the death penalty, is of course the easy choice. It is easier to strike the balance of favor of life and against death. It is comforting to relax in the thoughts, perhaps the rationalizations, that this is a compassionate decision for a maturing society, that this is the moral and the right thing to do, that thereby we convince ourselves that we are moving down the road toward human decency, that we value life, even though that life has taken another or others or has grievously scarred another or others in their families, that we are less barbaric than we were. That's great stuff. He goes on. I do not sit on these cases, however, as a legislator. Our task here, as must so frequently be emphasized and re-emphasized, as I'd like to do, me, D.K. Williams, back to Blackman. Our task is to pass upon the constitutionality of legislation that has been enacted and that is challenged. This is the sole task of judges. We should not allow our personal preferences as to the wisdom of legislative and congressional action or our distaste for such action to guide our judicial decision in cases such as these. The temptations to cross that policy line are very great. In fact, as today's decision reveals, they are almost irresistible. 
back to me. While I'm sympathetic to Douglas's opinion, as I think, as Blackman is, I agree with Blackman as I started off this podcast. I think the death penalty is immoral, but I cannot say it's unconstitutional because it's not. So the death penalty should be ended by legislative action and not judicial action. So what's going on in Colorado right now where I sit? There are three people on death row in Colorado as I speak. One has been there for 25 years since 1993. The other two since 2008. The last execution in Colorado was in 1997. Now I submit that the death penalty, while still on the books, is effectively dead in Colorado. If you look back to the Aurora Theater shooting in 2012, six years ago is when the shooting was, that murderer confessed to the shooting and he pleaded not guilty by reason of insanity because the DA for Arapahoe County refused to take the death penalty off the table. He would have just pled guilty and said, I'll spend life under the jail until I die. I'll never breathe another free breath of life again. The government agent said, nope. We want to kill you. So millions of dollars later, millions of dollars later, the Arapahoe County prosecutors failed to get the death penalty and got exactly what was offered to them before all that time and money was spent. So he was convicted, and I'm purposely not saying these people's names, but this murderer in the Aurora Theater shooting was convicted of 24 counts of first-degree murder, 140 counts of attempted first-degree murder. He was sentenced to life in prison because the jury refused to give him the death penalty. If the jury's not going to give that guy the death penalty, it doesn't exist anymore in Colorado. So let's quit trying to use it. Let's quit wasting the money. If the state couldn't get the death penalty in that case, they should quit wasting everybody's time, quit wasting everybody's money, and retire the death penalty as a practical matter, even if the legislature doesn't. Just quit trying to execute people. It's a waste of money and time, and you can't get it anymore. That's the evolving standard. That's how we've changed. Juries won't give it, and more and more states are repealing the laws that allow for the death penalty. I hope that can happen in this upcoming General Assembly for Colorado. Democrats are going to do a whole lot of horrible things now that they control the Colorado government, but this is something good they could do. They could take the death penalty off the books in the state of Colorado. The current Colorado governor is a Democrat who's been term limited out, so he's finishing up. His name is John Hickenlooper, and he's probably going to run for president. But these three guys that were on death row and still are in Colorado, he refused to commute their sentences to life in prison without the possibility of parole, which he could do. That's part of the separation of powers. But what he did was said that we're not going to execute them as long as I'm governor. So the next governor could execute them. Now, a Democrat won. I don't think it's going to happen. The new Democrat governor is Jared Polis. So hopefully he will commute these sentences to life in prison without the possibility of parole because that use of government power is bad policy and it's immoral. Now, the Colorado Supreme Court, I do not think, should say the death penalty is unconstitutional according to the Colorado Constitution, because it's not. But the governor should stop it, and the state legislature should stop it. And that's how government is supposed to work with the separation of powers and a constitutional framework. I'm D.K. Williams, and this has been The Law, episode 16. We talked about Furman versus Georgia from 1973, a case that temporarily ended the death penalty in the United States of America. We're brought to you by the Launchpad Media Network, as always. Always, we're launching ideas in your direction. Find us at thelaunchpadmedia.com. Holla at me with your comments. Twitter at BlueCarp, Facebook.com, slash BlueCarp. Freedom is dangerous, my friends. Live dangerously.